Chapter 8 of The Great Sinners of the Bible. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Sinners of the Bible by Lewis Albert Banks. Chapter 8 The Slings and Arrows of an Outraged Conscience. And they said to one another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. Genesis 42, 21 The memory is one of the most important and marvelous characteristics of the human mind. Each one of us by daily deeds is hanging pictures on the walls of memory that will make of it in time to come either a chamber of peace or a dungeon of torture. There is an old Persian story of a vizier who dedicated one apartment in his palace to be a chamber of memory. In it he kept the memorials of his earlier days before royal favor had lifted him from his lowly place to a position of honor. It was a little room with bare floor, and here he kept his crook, his wallet, his coarse dress, and his water crews, the things which had belonged to his shepherd life. Every day he went for an hour from the splendors of his palace into this humble apartment to live again for a time amid the memories of his happy youth. Very sweet were his recollections, and by this daily visit his heart was kept warm and tender amid all the pomp and show and all the trial and sorrow of his public life. Whether we live in a palace or a tenement house, we have each our chamber of memory and we are furnishing it after our own designs. Pictures hang there which no eye but God sees, and these furnishings which are daily enriching it with beautiful things that minister to comfort and peace or with relics and mementos of evil that will torture us in times of weakness and age are our own creation, and we should select them with the greatest care, for when once we have them we cannot escape from them. If a man does not like his house, he may move away from it. He can sell it or rent it and move on to another street where the surroundings suit him better. He may even go to another town or another city to escape unpleasant surroundings. But a man cannot get away from the chamber of his memory in that way. It is like his shadow. It walks with him from street to street, from place to place, from one year into another, lies down with him at night, and rises with him in the morning. It has the power to compel his attention when it pleases, and ever and anon it will set its pictures before him and ensure his interest in them. A man cannot always decide what he will remember. The subject may be unpleasant, and to recall it may shame and humiliate him, but he cannot, because of that, say, I will not think of it again. We see a signal illustration of this in the text we are considering. Joseph's brethren were a long way from home, in a strange land where they had no knowledge that anyone knew anything about them, but they are suddenly confronted with rough treatment on the part of the ruler before whom they had come begging the privilege to buy corn, in the great stress of famine which was pinching them and their families. Not a word had been said to them about Joseph and they had perhaps not mentioned his name to each other for a long time. It was no doubt a tabooed subject between them, and it was so sad a subject to Jacob, their father, 
that there is every reason to suppose that the name of the lost youth was never mentioned in his presence. And yet, although their wicked deed to Joseph was twenty years or more past, when they were threatened with imprisonment and misfortune to every man of them, there came up that old picture of the hills of Dothan and the lad with his coat of many colors. Though the seasons of twenty years had come and gone, it all came back to them as though it were yesterday. They see the delicate, thoughtful boy coming over the hills in the distance with his message from home. They see themselves gathered together again, plotting against him as he comes with childlike trust toward them. All the old envy and jealousy that burned in their vengeful hearts comes back to them now, and seems absurd and wicked and horrible to them as they look back on it from the distance. They hear themselves saying again, Come now, therefore, and let us slay him, and cast him into some pit, and we will say some evil beast hath devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. Ah, what would they not give now to have that dreamer back? They see again the fear and terror on the delicate face of Joseph as they tear off his beautiful coat of many colors and fling him into the pit. And then the Egyptian caravan comes by, and they pull him up out of the pit and sell him for twenty pieces of silver, hardening their hearts against his cries and his anguish at their inhuman treatment. They have not thought of it for a long time, but to every man of them it comes back again as sharp and clear in its outlines as though it had just happened. They see that bloody coat again in their hands, which they had stained with the blood of a slain kid to deceive the poor old father. They hear again the lie on their lips when they took the bloody, torn garment to Jacob and said, This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. And again they look in the old man's despairing face and hear his heartbroken moan. It is my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. How could they ever forget that day? Jacob has never seemed like the same man since, and now these men turn one to another, and instead of talking about how they are going to escape, or how they are going to prove that they are not spies, every last man of them is thinking how he is ever going to get rid of that old sin of twenty years ago. Marvelous is the tenacity of the memory of conscience. Forgetfulness never can be trusted. Things seem to be lost in oblivion, but they are not lost. Isaiah declares that a wicked conscience is like a troubled sea that cannot rest, and the mire and the clay that have been cast into it in years gone by are likely to come up again at any time and be cast upon the shore only to be washed away by the returning tide and flung into sight again on some other beach a hundred miles away. Sin can never be finally hidden in God's universe, for God has not abandoned his creation, and he knows how to cause a man's sin to find him out. This world is a bad place for secrets. It is a great whispering gallery. Christ said that what men think in their hearts and speak in their closets is yet to be shouted from the housetops. A little old saying used when we have discovered somebody's secret is often on our tongue. A little bird told me. Like many other sayings and proverbs that have become popular in our common language, it had its source in the Bible. If you will turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, you will hear the wise man saying, Curse not the king, no, not in thy thought, 
for a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. A graphic way of setting forth the certainty of sin's discovering itself. A sinner not only carries the proof of his guilt in his own heart and conscience, but he carries there the court that pronounces sentence. These men did not wait for God's judgment. Their own consciences judged them and condemned them. They said to one another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother. Guilt of conscience turns a man against himself. Other witnesses may be all dead, or may have gone out of the country, or may be friendly to us and have no intention of accusing us. But that does not make the sinner safe, for he carries in his own breast the greatest accuser of all, one that can neither die nor run away, and one who can never be trusted to keep his guilty secret. Quaint old Dr. South says that sin will lie burning and boiling in the sinner's breast like a kind of Vesuvius of fire pent up in the bowels of the earth, which yet must, and will, in spite of all obstacles, force its way out at length. Thus, in some cases of sin, the anguish of the mind grows so fierce and intolerable that it finds no rest within itself, but is even ready to burst till it is delivered of the swelling secret it labors with. There are sins which have the same effect on the conscience which some medicines have on the stomach. They are no sooner received than it is in pain and torment till it throws them out again. No man can properly measure the force, the power, and the remorseless rage of conscience when God commissions it to call the sinner to an account. How strangely it will arouse him in an unexpected hour! How terribly it will wring and torture him! till it has bolted out the hidden guilt of which it was in search. As a game dog will run up and down through the woods, hunting out the darkest places, penetrating remote thickets, searching deep canyons, until it routs the game for which it was sent, and with bellowing drives it to the light, and to the master's gun, so God knows how to arouse conscience, and send it searching in the darkest corners of forgetfulness." and with the bellowing that sounds like the bell of doom drives sin from its retreat to face the glare of the judgment seat. The conscience is God's hunting dog in the sinner's breast. You cannot turn it aside with bribes of dainty morsels, but true to its trust, it will steadily bring you to condemnation. Reason joins with memory in bringing the verdict against the sinning soul. When memory brought back the picture of that old wrongdoing, conscience made these men say, We are guilty, and their reason added, Therefore is this distress come upon us. We talk sometimes about poetic justice. By that we mean that it is justice peculiarly adequate in punishment to the sin. All God's judgments are poetic, and the sinner himself, when conscience begins its work of judgment, is the first to admit that the judgment is poetic and just. There is a strange case related in the first chapter of Judges of an old man named Adoni Bezek, who lived in the land of Bezek and was a sort of an Ishmaelite of a man in the world of his day. He was a man of great force and power, a bloodthirsty old fellow who boasted of his genius in inventing means of torture which he administered to the great persons who were captured by him. Finally, he experienced the truth of the word, which says that the man who takes the sword shall perish by the sword, and was himself captured, and when he was caught, his enemies cut off his thumbs and his great toes, 
and old Adoni Bizek, in the hour of his imprisonment and despair, said, Three score and ten kings, having their thumbs and their great toes cut off, gathered their meat under my table, as I have done, so God hath requited me. An aroused conscience not only cannot be thrown off the scent, but it often causes the sinner to flee when no man pursueth. At last these men had gone out with sorrow, leaving Simeon behind in the dungeon. When they made their first camp and opened their sacks, they found their money, each man's money, in his sack. Now Joseph had done that for love of them, but their guilty consciences made this incident only a link in the chain that seemed to be tightening about them. And the next time they came down to Egypt, when Joseph commanded that they should be brought to his own house and a feast prepared for them, although it was intended as a kindness, yet their guilty consciences made it seem like a threat and drove them wild with terror. And they said one to another, Because of the money that was returned in our sacks, at the first time are we brought in, that he may seek occasion against us, and fall upon us, and take us for bondmen. These men would not now be shrinking in terror for fear of becoming bondmen themselves if they had not sold Joseph to be a bondman twenty years before. No wild beast is more merciless and relentless than a guilty conscience. A tiger hunter in India heard his companion, who was sleeping on the veranda, scream out in agony, Help! For God's sake! Help! The tiger's got me! Help! Help! Rushing through the darkness, he found that the tiger had stolen in upon his friend without the slightest warning and had seized him by the hand, which he had raised to defend himself, and had commenced to drag him off. In his agony, he arose to his feet and, after descending the steps of the bungalow, was actually walking off with his hand in the tiger's mouth to be devoured, when his friend, by his courage and presence of mind, rescued him from an awful death by stabbing the tiger through the heart. A man who has sinned against his own soul has put his hand in the mouth of a tiger that will drag him to judgment unless it is slain. The only cure for a guilty conscience is in forgiveness of the sin that caused the guilt. How differently Joseph's brethren felt after he made himself known to them and assured them of his forgiveness. No doubt when they first knew who he was, they were all the more apprehensive and fearful, for they could see that he had the power to put them all to death for their sin against him. But when one by one he embraced them and assured them of his forgiveness and asked loving questions about the old home, all the bitter remorse and terror for that sin committed twenty years ago was taken away, and it no longer had the power to make them shrink and shiver and cower with dread. So when a man is aroused by his conscience to see the horrid character of his sin against God, and to keenly appreciate his guilt, and to know the punishment which naturally belongs to his sin, and to realize that there is no escaping from God's hand, he is at first all the more apprehensive and fearful, and is ready to despair. But when he sees on the face of Christ his Savior a smiling look of forgiveness, and hears his kind words, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out, the bitterness is gone, and the sting of guilt is taken away, and instead there is the joy and peace of conscious forgiveness. Joseph's kisses sucked all the poison out of that old wound. So the caresses of Jesus Christ suck all the poison from the memory of our sins and bring to us a peace 
that passes all understanding and casts out all fear. End of chapter 8. Read by Robin Lee, Denver, Colorado, April 18, 2022.